we saw musk ox, Arctic fox, we saw Arctic hare. And then as we got further inland, we saw Arctic wolves that came into our camp. The wildlife was amazing. I was telling a friend of mine, I've been to the Arctic many times, I've seen polar bears in the Arctic, but I've never seen an abundance of wildlife that was not freaked out by us being there. That's Ray Zahab, Royal Canadian Geographical Society explorer in residence. He's just back from an RCGS-flagged overland expedition on Ellesmere Island in Canada's high Arctic. He's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to Explore. I'm your host, David McGuffin. I'm thrilled to have Ray Zahab back on the podcast. He was our very first guest back in 2019 on this podcast. And give that one a listen if you want to have a great overview on his amazing career as an extreme athlete and expedition leader, traveling to some of the hottest, coldest, most remote parts of this planet. His latest expedition to Ellesmere Island fits right into that mold. And what I love about this conversation is not just what he saw and the immense challenges that he faced, but also our talk about his decision-making process in deciding to pause that expedition and how that process has changed in the 20 plus years since he's been doing these kinds of expeditions. Before we get there, I'd like to take a minute to talk about Canadian Geographic magazine. Each issue of this incredible and unique magazine is packed with award-winning writing and photography about Canada, its landscape, wildlife, environment, people, history, and so much more. A subscription is just $28.50. That includes full digital access and six print issues a year. And it comes with a free wall map of Canada. So just visit canadiangeographic.ca forward slash subscribe to sign up today. You'll be happy that you did. And now on to Ray Zahab. I'm really pleased to have Ray Zahab back with us on the podcast. It's been a long time. Ray was our very first guest on this podcast. And this time you are our very first post-COVID. I guess we're not out of COVID yet, but you're the very first guest I've had in person since the, the pandemic began. So another first for you. It's exciting. I'm stoked to be here. And we're at your place recording this in beautiful Chelsea, Quebec, which is amazing on Meech yeah. Lake. So much history here. Yeah, it's an interesting world we live in. You know, just the, you know, the post-COVID. Is it, is it, in some ways you're right, because technically speaking, this thing is going to become endemic, mm -hmm. right? And it's yeah. so now it's like the post-psychological right. aspect of everything, the trauma that we've all been through. You know, I, I think that the way we go about things has changed. Oh, you no, know, I know just in preparation for the trips that I've done since you and I last recorded, everything has changed. Even with my guiding, with our foundation, with my own trips, the preparation, the... Uh, I've never been so careful at not getting sick. So, I mean, obviously that figured into your latest trip, which was Ellesmere Island. And mm -hmm. for people who don't know where Ellesmere Island is, if you go to the very top of Canada, like there's islands and there's islands, and then there's Ellesmere Island right at the top, kind of wraps around Greenland, heading towards the North Pole, right? So It's at the tippy top. Yeah. I mean, you can't get on land closer on Canadian soil to the North Pole. Amazing. than Ellesmere, right? I mean, Warthunt Island, yeah. which is off the sort of northern coast, if you will, of Ellesmere, is yeah. the furthest landmass north, I believe, from North America going to the pole. Incredible. You're just back from there. What I mean, what is that landscape like? Where, where are you going into? Like, where are you landing? Where does this begin? And what is that landscape that you're looking Okay, at? so I've done numerous winter arctic expeditions and by winter i don't mean when there's snow on the ground i mean in the months of january february mm. etc right. sometimes early march um in the season of winter love being in the arctic in winter 
because the light has a different feel. When the sun is just barely cresting the horizon, yeah. the way that the blue light cascades across the landscape is just amazing. The snow crystals, when the light hits it, is right. incredible. It's like rubies yeah, in right. the ground, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's it's just such an amazing time. And I've made many friends in the Arctic over the years, um, visiting and, um, you know, uh, especially in the Eastern Arctic and, and it, lifelong friends. But we were, our plan was, you know, fly through Resolute Land in Greece Fjord, mm -hmm. in the southern, most southern part of Ellesmere, if you right. will. And from this community of 150 people, leave from Greece Fjord on foot, mm -hmm. self-contained, I would say not unsupported. We never said unsupported because we would have a filmmaker with us this time cool. who would go by snow machines with our friend uh, Terry Noah from Greece Fjord and his um, nephews and friends who, mm -hmm. you know, basically it was a crew, yeah, a very small crew. We were three snow machines at one point. And they would bring Caroline Cote, our filmmaker, north with us. And I mean, obviously she's gonna film us skiing and pulling our sleds, whatever, but that gets boring very quickly. Yeah. So they, <laughs> that was not the focus, the focus for her, uh, as one will see down the road when we complete this documentary, the focus was a huge part of this was on Terry yeah. and his uh, way of interacting with the land, the things that we were able to learn from sure. Terry, but also about Ellesmere, the yeah. place, and uh, the wildlife. And that's in, in yes. community. Yeah, you know, a community. I have to tell you, so that's the beginning of the experience. That's how it would look. Kevin and I pulling our sleds, Kevin Vallely and myself, pulling mm -hmm. our sleds, which weigh approximately 250 to 280 pounds each. All of our food, supplies, everything self-contained. Right. Everything we would need mm -hmm. behind us. Yeah. Not unsupported because we have this filmmaker right. who is nearby. So if something bad was to happen, we could always yeah. use our trackers or whatever to communicate. Yeah. And, and there we go. They're going to be there. Right. Can we just round out the cast too? So it's you and Kevin Vallely, who you've you've done a number of. Kevin and I have been to the South Pole in a world record time, yeah. pulling our sleds yeah. for a little less than 34 days with our friend Richard Weber. Vallely and I have crossed Lake Baikal, Siberia in winter 2010, yeah. covering over 50 kilometers a day, so on and so forth. Kevin's Road, the Northwest Passage are a huge part of it. We've done multiple expeditions right. and had a lot of experience going into this yeah. thing because you don't take these things for granted. And this for us is sort of the pinnacle of the projects that we want to do in the Arctic. Yeah. Because it would involve so much more than just us doing this physical thing. We were, our route was planned to be 70, 65 to 70% overland, right. not just traveling on the frozen water around and through fjords, but actually experiencing overland, traditional hun uh, Inuit hunting routes. And as well, um, we wanted to do this thing in winter. The community of Greece Fjord mm -hmm. at 150 people, was one of the most extraordinary communities I've ever visited in my life. The people and the friends that we made there were just amazing. Yeah. There's an energy in this community and you know, your listeners without going too deeply into these things, and I would encourage you to learn the history of Greece Fjord, how that community was created basically forcing people onto a land oh, right. almost as human flagpoles for sovereignty really a tragic part of mm. our history, but something that we should all there know was, about. And there was multiple communities like that. Yeah. Some of them didn't survive, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. So this was the community mm -hmm. that we would, would leave from. And of course we learned so much when we were there. And then upon our return to Greece, which I know you're going to ask me about, but wow, we made some close friends, like just mm -hmm. amazing um, yeah. folks. So 
So no one in Greece is like, it's January, Ray. Why would you go out? Well, it was the... March by the time we got there, right? We, With oh, COVID right, delays. Sorry, you know, true, we had yeah. anticipated being there at the end of January, starting the expedition around right. mid to third week February. Yeah. With uh, COVID, we wanted to be especially careful mm -hmm. with COVID. Yeah. Um, so all of us were triple vaccinated before yeah. going, et cetera. Yeah. Wanted to make sure that we had all the proper permissions. We wanted to make sure that the community was cool with inviting us, mm -hmm. uh, that we were, you know, very respectful right. before going um, on our on our adventure. And when everything was cool and everybody was stoked, we were ready to launch. And mm -hmm. that put us in and around the beginning of March. I think we started the expedition on or around the 1st of March. Okay, great. So you've, you've got each have a sled polk, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Which you've loaded up with how much? 280 pounds of right. food, fuel, supplies for what we anticipated to alert would take us 40 to 50 days. Right. So alerts the very top. Very top. top. Canadian Air Force Base. Right. And you're on skis. On skis and on foot. For approximately 1,000, 1,100 kilometers with all the zigzags and everything you'd have to do. What kind of temperatures are we looking at in the beginning of March? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, we at three of our camps were the coldest recorded temperatures in Canada in that period. So it's cold there. It's very cold. It's cold time of year, actually. Yeah. And we were daytime highs of minus 30 highs. without any wind. <laughs> yeah. And nighttime lows estimated in the minus 50 range right. without the wind. Right. right add the wind onto that it feels a lot colder and here's the crazy thing yeah. that i had to double triple check relative humidity sometimes 90 percent. you think of it being very dry up there absolutely you? yeah you think yeah. not everything damp after a while you know wow which has got to wreak havoc with a lot of things i would think with those cold temperatures and the damp combo. it wreaks havoc on your mind <laughs> you know what i mean like it's just so cold and we've been in extreme cold i've actually been in colder places i've yeah. you know being uh, in Kikik Tarjuak in January 2020, if you recall, yeah. I ran self-contained. So with all my supplies and everything, I ran from the island of Kikik Tarjuak across the Davis Strait over Baffin. And when I was going up to Summit Lake, it was minus 50, but it was 100 kilometer an hour winds, you know, whatever. It was blowing super hard. You can imagine that wind chill, right? Yeah. You're feeling like minus 70 for sure. So it's a damp cold. So I mean, you're feeling the cold more probably. That and the consistency. Yeah. You know, when I've done other Arctic projects, you always have a couple of warm days thrown in there where mm -hmm. it gets up to minus 20 or whatever, right? Yeah. But there was no break. It was just yeah. frigid all the time. And you talked about the sunlight at the start, but I mean, what, what's your daytime like there this time of year? So this was incredible because you're so far north, it's rapidly changing. So you go from, we ended up arriving after total darkness. Yeah. So we had like a couple hours of daylight a day, whatever, sort of dusky to you're gaining. I, I forget what the number is, but it's something extraordinary, like 10 minutes a day. It's some crazy amount of yeah, sunlight per yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. So by the end of our trip, you're, you know, the sun is staying up for as long as it was here. Wow. So I was looking at Google Maps on Ellesmere Island, and I think it said something like an island with many polar bears. Mm -hmm. So is that, was that a reality for you guys? Polar like bear tracks everywhere. From the minute we left Greece Fjord and yeah. started going up the fjord towards our first overland, we saw muskox, we oh, saw arctic fox, yeah. we saw arctic hare, and then as we got further inland, we saw arctic wolves that came into our camp. We saw, I mean, it was just, the wildlife was amazing. It was, I was telling a friend of mine, I've been to the Arctic many times, I've seen polar bears in the Arctic, but I've never seen an abundance of wildlife that was not freaked out by us being there, you know? Because there's so few people. Mm. Yeah, that's incredible. It surprises me, I guess. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, but I, I am. I mean, I sort of think of, that just being a, a barren. Well, I, I was asking place. Terry, I said, yeah. 
all these muskox. Yeah. The hell do they eat? I mean, it's yeah. just snow. And he said, no, they're really great at foraging. And they get underneath that snow yeah. and yeah. they eat all the grass and everything. And there's tons of them. Right. Let's talk about Terry a bit more if we can. Uh, sounds like an amazing guy. That community, Greece, are they living a semi-traditional kind of life? Well, I mean, Terry points to the outdoors and, yeah. and he says, that's our grocery store. For sure. Yeah. You know, living off the land is is a tradition that, and a tradition of hunting that I saw Terry and his nephew Nolan when yeah. we were out there. And the younger people learning from Terry uh, and Terry's a young man himself. I think Terry 30 okay. and Terry's dad. I met Terry's dad and we visited and had tea with Terry's dad mm-hmm. and learned from him how he taught Terry to hunt. And that tradition of, you know, taking food from the land um, and providing for the entire community is is very important there. I got to tell you, if you I was to describe Terry to you, Terry is like this comic book hero mm-hmm. that's come to life. Yeah. I mean, he's just this incredible young man. He is the future of that. Like in his region, where he is, of his community, he's the future. I mean, he's created yeah. a successful guiding operation now, and he has you know people working for him. So he's mm-hmm. providing income in the community. He's very involved in food security All in right. his community. He's a family man he's got kids i mean just this amazing guy right right right. and we connected right away with terry and learned a ton from him while we were there but i gotta tell you it's some of the stories about this guy that are even more amazing like there's this story and it's it's factual his dad verified the story his dad was there him and his dad were out I think they were out on a seal hunt one day anyhow they had a seal and they Mm -hmm. were cleaning the seal and unbeknownst to them a couple of polar bears had snuck up on them mm-hmm. as they were cleaning the seal on the ice. And this giant polar bear standing up there, you know, and it's stand- so the gun was laying on the ground. They weren't prepared for this. And this polar bear, this huge polar bear, is standing sort of, if you can picture this, on the ice above the snow machine is behind the bear. Yeah. And the gun is leaned against the snow machine, you know, under the bear's legs, basically. Yeah. Right? And Terry makes a move this bear stand and he makes a move for the gun and slides between the polar bear's legs <laughs> action hero. i mean action hero it's just i can't you know yeah. and the rest is history i mean and he saves the day another time someone in the community had gone out on the ice late season i think it was on their four-wheeler or snow machine and had broken through the ice yeah and everyone was convinced that he had perished yeah and the person was out hunting and terry for some reason didn't feel he felt that he needed to go and check and he went out on foot on the ice and found him found this guy he had gotten out of the water and he was laying there and terry helped to get him to a nearby cabin and they heated it up and he saved the guy's life i mean just this amazing guy so anyhow so he's a great resource for you obviously oh and friend and friend yeah and just the importance for people who are doing expeditions like this into that part of the world like it's so important to connect with local communities and not only like get their advice, but get their permissions too. Well, and I've been at this for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done 30, I don't know what now, 33 expeditions. Yeah. And what I've come to realize in all this time is that for me, I got nothing to prove to myself, you know? Uh, It's no longer about the endurance aspect. I mean, I love the endurance and I love the challenge. I told you already, I'm headed to Death Valley this July. I'm going to be doing a project there. That's an endurance, crazy hard thing I'm going to do out there in the middle of the desert. But, probably be my last Death Valley project. But, 
these projects where we're given an opportunity mm-hmm. in this day and age yep. still to be able to connect, make new friends, learn about a place from truly the people who live there yeah. every day. We're yeah. simply just visitors. Yeah. That's a more meaningful part of the expedition now for me. You yeah. know, like things have evolved. It used to be, okay, I want to get from point A to point B and I want to do it this way. Yeah. And now it's like, I, I don't know for how many years it's been, but it's it's evolved to a point where I'm very strongly more about the process yeah. and the people than I am about the end yeah. destination. Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it you does. Know? No, it does. It just adds. It's just a layer of. It's a deeper layer of texture to everything, right? Mm. The more you involve local people, and and let alone the whole. I mean, there's been a lot of ink written about the Franklin expedition and what they didn't do. <laughs> was listen to the Inuit who could have told them exactly where to go and how not to freeze to death in the high Arctic and wind up eating each other. Well, wasn't it the same thing with the ships that the Inuit knew where the ships were oh, forever? Totally. Oh, yeah, forever. Like there was a mast sticking out of the water yeah. or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, and they were yeah. like, oh, that's where the ship is. Yeah. And nobody would listen. Yeah, just over here. Yeah. Yeah. We know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's incredible. So th- there's huge value, obviously, to that, let alone just the friendships, and w- which are hugely important, too. So you're out there and it, it's, it's getting tough for you guys, right? The weather's tough. But it, I, so the thing I, I, mean, I was following you, obviously, on Instagram and there was some amazing photos and stuff. But the, the, there's the story is this, that the snow was sticky almost. Or... Okay, so it, this, the deal with the snow. Yeah. All of our gear dialed, our bodies dialed, our food dialed, we had everything dialed for this expedition from years and years of experience, yeah, right? Yeah. But one thing we did not anticipate was the absolute abrasiveness of the snow. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, hey, dummy, it's winter in the Arctic. The snow's abrasive. When you get below a certain temperature, it's like glass. It's like hauling your sled on broken glass. But I would never think of that. Oh, I, yeah. I think of oh, snow yeah. as being it's, no, uh, no. It's an element of water, so it's no, slick, it's, right? Uh, no, when it gets cold, I mean, even here on a minus 20 ski mm-hmm. day, yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, your skis don't glide. Yeah. It's like that exponentially more, and then you're hauling a sled, which has a large surface area over basically sandpaper. And Kevin and I have experienced that many, many times before on our way to the South Pole right. or... You know, uh, when uh, any one of these Arctic projects we've done, we've experienced that abrasiveness of the snow at a certain temperature. But something was different this time, where the snow was just that much more abrasive. And we had always planned to do 20 to 25 kilometers per day. We Mm -hmm. knew we could manage that, given our history of doing much more on a daily basis. We were certain we could at least manage that. And we planned... Okay, we can be out there for 20 kilometers a day average. That's 50 days mm-hmm. of food and supplies. Right. But more than likely, we'll do 25 to 30 as our sleds get lighter, which yeah. very quickly eats into the amount of time that you're out there. Yeah. We got out into the fjords, started out, and we realized, whoa, this is a lot more abrasive than mm-hmm. what we had anticipated, but we could still do 20 to 25 days. It's going to kill us, but we can get there. If it stays like this, yeah. we'll still be able to manage it. As we got overland, yeah. that's when it was like a ton of bricks hit us. And we were like, no, these sleds are not moving more than 10, maybe 15 kilometers a day. The snow was, granted, less snow than what Terry saw there normally. Yeah. But what Kevin and I had anticipated was the snow that would be there would be wind-packed. Yeah. So your sled would sort of sit on top and your skis would sit on top. Yeah. And it, yes, it would be abrasive and slow, but still you could move forward. Right. Instead, what we were presented with was snow that was like powder, complete powder. And each snowflake, huh. like an individual glass crystal, huh. where there was a crust at all was fully breakable crust. So you would step on it and you would break, break through, through right away. Yeah. 
And then underneath all of this was rocks. Hmm. Now, the sleds that we were pulling were actually really good for pulling over rocks. I know that sounds crazy. Pulling over the rocks was easier than pulling over the snow. But there's only so much over the rocks you can pull your sleds over before you start wearing holes in them. And we had a long way to go. Yeah. They're Kevlar or what are they? No, they're made out of some special plastic. But like super high-tech stuff. Amazing stuff. They were made for us in Alaska by a place called Northern Sled Works. They make amazing sleds. So we had a decision to make. Mm-hmm. And the decision was, all right, well, look it. We can't be out here for 100 days because we don't have 100 days of food and supplies. Right. And even if we did, you couldn't pull a sled that had 100 days of food and supplies. You'd do two kilometers a day. Now you need 500 days of supplies, right? So we were like, all right, well, this is not happening this way. We do have with us Terry and the team. Let's first of all, we tried a half load. Let's go with half, the sleds would not pull. So we said, all right, let's utilize support and be as efficient as we can in this first overland section. Mm-hmm. When you're on an adventure like this, Dave, any adventure I've been on, sometimes when you're pushing your limits, you're pushing the limits, mm-hmm. you're in, you're on an overland Ellesmere expedition in the coldest time of year. Things don't work out the way you want them to. And you have to be able to adapt and suck up the pride and say, all right, we have to be willing to amend the way we're doing this and do this in a better way in order to achieve our goal. Mm -hmm. And so we decided that we would go with full support on Mm -hmm. a day-to-day basis and reassess day-to-day, get to the next fjord, which would be Vendem Fjord after climbing a glacier, going down the other side, totally overland, and then get onto that next fjord Head up that one, and then we had a couple more overland sections. After that, we would be in, and I'm drawing a blank on the name, Cannon Fjord. And from that point, we have a long stretch of sea ice. Well, that point, we're well over, or at least, I think we're getting close to two-thirds of the expedition done. Mm -hmm. Sleds are going to be a lot lighter. Take all our stuff back. Yeah. uh, Go completely unsupported to alert from that point. Yeah. Caroline, our filmmaker, would leave by Twin Otter. And then at that point, our crew, which was very small, mm-hmm. um, Eric and Silas from Grease Fjord, Terry's friends, they would head back on the snow machines all the way back to Grease Fjord at a distance of around, well, they'd have to go around. They would stay on the sea ice, so it'd be probably closer to five, 600K for them to go back. Wow. Yeah. So that was the plan. Yeah. We reformulated the plan. Okay, guys, but they were always going to be with us to that point anyhow because they were bringing Caroline who was shooting all the wildlife and all of the other stories. I mean, we have some amazing footage of these guys disassembling these snow machines and putting them back together on the land. They know every piece of that snow machine, right? Yeah, in, mi- they, in minus 30 degrees. Yeah, in minus 30 degrees in a tent. I mean, yeah. you know, making gaskets out of cardboard. Like just unbelievable, yeah. like engineering geniuses with these machines, right? Mm-hmm. She was there to capture that story more even than, than our story the whole way. But the snow machines perpetually were breaking down. It's so cold and the ground's so rough with a little less snow than is there normally. The snow machines were taking a beating and they were constantly breaking down. So now we're in a predicament. We're relying on support because the parameters of the expedition have temporarily changed. Um, Caroline, it's our way moving forward. It's all of our way moving forward with these snow machines. We've become reliant on the snow machines. And we got to a point where we were more or less on Vendem Fjord right there. And for the third straight morning, snow machines wouldn't start because it's so cold. We had to tent the machines, which is they rebuild the tents yeah. over the machines and heat them up. And I said to Kevin, Kevin and I both had this discussion and we said, "There's this is not working. Yeah. This is not safe. Yeah, and it's yeah. not working like... 
okay, let's say we make it to Cannon Fjord. Let's yeah. say we get there. And Caroline gets picked up by Twin Otter. She's gone to Resolute. And Kevin and I have all our stuff, and then we keep moving. Perfect world if we get to that point. Silas and Eric got to go back to mm -hmm. Grease Fjord yeah. on these machines. Are Pulling the comatics. Is the machines going to make it? This is crazy. So we're at risk on the way out. We're at risk on the way back. It's just, we can't do this. And it's no one's fault. I mean, I you, we could not, well, we can't wait to get back next year and work with these guys because we have the best yeah. team. And they yeah, were yeah. so stoked to want to keep going. But we were like, they're like, guys, oh, we're going to get the machines going. We're going to keep on going. I'm like, it was very hard for it was a very heartbreaking decision but years of experience have taught us that sometimes it's not your time and it's the decisions you make yeah. that are not only for you but for others on your team we are a unit yeah. one team and so we said no this isn't working we got to go back guys there's a let's reassess you know th there's a better way to do this and so we headed back back over these 11 hours, eh? back over these this glacier and then back down through the overland, like huge overlands, going over rocks. And I'm looking at the skis on the snow machine. I'm thinking, oh man, we're going to break a ski or something, you know, on the, like, on, the, on the snow machine. We get out into the fjord. Uh, we're about 50K from Grease Fjord on the sea ice. Boom, one of the engines blows wow. on the snow machine. Pistons wow. right through the engine, right? Like toast. Done. Yeah. We had to abandon it and the Kamatek out on the ice. We all climb onto the one snow machine, Eric's snow machine. And the, you know, so all of us are clinging to the Kamatek. We have all our gear and everything. And we're all like, the snow machine's like, it's just revving so high. It's the middle of the night. And we just got back to Grease Fjord. And I remember the three of us, Caroline and Kevin and I saying, oh my God, we made a good decision. Like, I mean, sometimes the hardest decisions are the best decisions to make. But we met with Terry and the team after and Terry's dad, mm -hmm. and we're already planning to go back right. next March. We have, I'm not gonna say how we're doing things yet, mm -hmm. but we have a plan in motion. Right, working and with Terry and all. Working with Terry, and, and we're going as one team, yeah. collaborating to succeed together, yeah. and all of us will go all the way from Greece, that's our goal, to alert, and we are gonna be implementing Inuit ways of moving on the land. We are going to be, Alter, alterations here and there yeah. suffice to say you know on the journey of doing expeditions all these years i've always learned something significant from every trip i've done what am i at close to twenty thousand kilometers yeah in the hottest deserts at the hottest time of year and across the arctic and in those twenty thousand kilometers or so i learn something every single time i go out and there's like an epiphany occasionally, a major epiphany for mm -hmm. to use a word that gets used way too often, but whatever. Um, and this time, it really was the meaning of what we were trying to accomplish on this expedition. And I pictured myself pulling this giant heavy sled and knocking my head against the wall and thinking to myself, okay, wait a second. It's not about that. Right. Like there's just so much more to this trip. And... Our goal is to get from Southern Ellesmere to Northern Ellesmere on the route that we want to do at the time of year we want to do it, but even more so share in this expedition with our friends in Greece and with the community. 
and make it something much more special even yeah. now. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's interesting what you've built too and how you do these expeditions is you know, dramatically changed over the years as you've done it. And you're, it's now such an educational, you've got kids around the world like following your every mm, move. And yeah. There's a responsibility to that too, right? I mean, you know, it's like, wh what lessons are they learning from what I'm doing up there? That must be going through. Well, mind. you know, I've had whatever I just said, 33 I, 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 trips or something that I've done four times. Yeah the rocket boosters have come off and it's not working, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, Kamchatka was another time. You know, we yeah. were 20 days unsupported on the land, almost there, like yeah. 150K from our finish. Yeah. And Stefano and I had to pull the plug because once again, relying on local knowledge, the hunters of that region on the other side of this mountain range said, oh, you can call it climate change. And obviously we call it climate change. Yeah. So we've had such an unusual winter and there's an early melt on this side all of these river systems are wide open and flowing uh, so to go into a place that we thought would be frozen solid over these last 150k risk our lives and then risk the lives of others to come and rescue us when inevitably we would need to be rescued because the hunters are saying to us do not go there we are telling you we live in this land we hunt on this land don't go there it's super dangerous mm -hmm the message taken on that expedition is sometimes things are out of your control and your decision gets made for you. Uh, Mother Nature had other plans on that expedition and you have to respect that and you have to respect the knowledge of the people that live in these places, right? Yeah. No. Uh, this time, you know, our decision, we felt physically fantastic. We had adapted to the cold. The frostbite that we had was managed. Right. Uh, we were well-fueled in our bodies. We were ready to yeah. keep moving. But the decision this time was for the greater good of the team, you know, not only for ourselves, but for everyone on the team. Yeah. I, Those lessons are important to kids that are following. Yeah. I mean, you guys put out a video, like a six minute video, you and Kevin talking together about your decision. What really impressed me or struck me watching it was just there's a healthy level of detachment with what you guys were saying, like why you did it. I mean, obviously there's disappointment, but there was not a lot of ego in it. And I was impressed with that. And I think that goes back to your experience. I bet you the first time you had to abandon a, an expedition was a lot tougher in some ways than this one. Would that be fair to say? Yes, it, you're totally fair to say. And it, you question yourself and you, did I do the right thing? As a, but the older I get in doing these things, it's almost like that sixth sense. Mm -hmm. The day that we had to pull the plug, three Arctic wolves walked into our camp. We're very close to our camp, and mm -hmm. we saw them, and I was like, oh, boy, the, you know, and they're like, hey, guys, can't get the snow machine going, and, I, and all these things are happening at once, and I'm thinking, wow, I hope that's not some kind of sign. And when the sinking feeling hit us when we knew that day that it was over, and, and there had been, like, I mean, the, to, this had been percolating for a few days in the tent at night. Kevin and I are trying to think of solutions. How can we keep moving? Is there something we, can we get another snow machine up here? Is there another thing we get? I mean, it wasn't about the snow, you know, like the snow machines were, it, it was the land and it was the cold and it was everything else. You could bring 10 snow machines up there and they're all going to take the same beating. Right. And yeah. so you're just trying to find solutions. There were a lot of tears that day. You know, the day that we had to quit, it was very difficult to make that decision because you have to remember, it's not just uh, how we showed up. We've been planning this since talking about it since 2010, when we were in Siberia, planning it for four years and many false starts over those four years because yeah. we're in a global pandemic. And then the training, the dedication, the financial resources, the commitments to our friends, sponsors, you know, to the schools, everybody. It was a very hard decision to make, but when we made it, we knew it was the right one. Like yeah. I knew it inside, deep inside. And you can't, 
uh, feel sad about that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. the right thing to do. So you have to own it. Yeah. And and we owned it. And the video you saw is us looking at it from the perspective that this is something that we felt was the right yeah. move to make. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And learning to trust your gut instincts is such an important lesson yes. to learn. And it comes from experience ultimately, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm really happy you got back in one piece. Me know? too. Yeah. And so we'll be looking forward to part two and there'll be a part two, hopefully, of this conversation. Oh, yeah. This is, yeah, there will be a part two and they, we are stoked. I mean, I, you know, Kevin's training now. Yeah. We're preparing, um, you know, uh, with the team at uh, RCGS as well yeah. for the expedition for next year. We're in communication with our team in Greece. Everybody is super stoked to get back, yeah. get on this again. And, you know, make it happen. Yeah. Uh, I've got other projects throughout the year. I mentioned going to Death Valley, Death Valley and yeah. then some other projects with, uh, hopefully with Impossible Impossible. We want to do a trip this year with some youth and yeah. stuff like that. And then I'm guiding some trips as well with my with my company, Capic One. There's a lot happening this year yeah. and uh, I'm excited about 2022, yeah. you know? And so going into, tw into 23, so there's definitely going to be a part two to this. Awesome. It's always great to talk to you, Ray. It's a real pleasure. Likewise. Yeah. Take care, brother. We'll see you, buddy. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode or this podcast, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're all slaves to the algorithm in this podcasting universe. And the more good things are said about us, the more opportunities we get to reach a bigger audience. And remember also to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin.
Care, brother. We'll see you, buddy. Yeah.